Thank you all so much for being here, and we are uh, excited to be continuing on in our Changing Neighborhoods series. And so this is kind of the culmination, uh, the final full sermon that we're going to have through this series. And so um, as we talk through that, we want to recognize that uh, for some of you, you've been with us every single week, and that's awesome. We want to celebrate that with you. For some of you, we haven't been here every single week, and so I just want to take a, a few seconds just to revisit where we've been, because this whole idea is, is coming through this, this concept of changing neighborhoods, not just because we've moved addresses, but changing neighborhoods because we want to address how God wants to move in where we live. And so we've been taking the past week since Easter to be able to dive into this idea of what it looks like to be changing neighborhoods and what role we have in that process. And so we started off in the very beginning just the idea of taking action, that we can't remove ourselves from the community, from the neighborhood, but like the Israelites in the Babylonian exile, uh, we have to take action and get plugged into our city. Uh, next, we talked about this idea of having compassion, that, that we have to be moved to action uh, because seeing the stories of, of those and getting to know people and, and recognize that we may not have enough to solve every problem, but like the boy who gave his five loaves and two fish to Jesus to feed the thousands, whatever we have, we can give to him and he could take it and he could bless it, he could break it and he can multiply it. Then we talked about serving and how we want to, some of us have insecurities and we don't want to jump into serving because we feel like we're not ready yet or we're not good enough, but recognizing that we can't allow those insecurities to stop us from answering the call that God has put on our lives to serve one another and to serve our neighborhoods. Then we talked about this idea of walking with people in need. This idea of that the four friends who carried the paralyzed man and broke open the roof and brought that paralyzed man before Jesus, that we are walking alongside people, whether it's a physical need, an emotional need, a spiritual need, and we have the opportunity to not just be with them in there, but to be with them, walk with them, and bring them to the feet of Jesus, who's the one who can work in their lives in incredible ways, that we can be a part of bringing them to the foot of Christ. And then last week, we talked about sacrificial generosity, and we, we talked about this idea that we cannot outgive God, but he loves it when we try. And so answering that call to be able to make sure that we are living generously and sacrificing generously, and so that while we give, that people who are far from God would be able to see that there are people who love them and that we can't outgive God. We can't give him more than he's given back to us. But as we try, we're able to have an impact that brings the gospel to those here in our neighborhoods and beyond. And so this morning, I'm going to ask that you join me in a word of prayer as we dive in and as we talk about the topic of changing neighborhoods through being a good neighbor, which is where we're going to land this morning. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here in this place. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for this community, uh, for worship, for your word. And so, Lord, we pray that in this time that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful way, that we have the eyes and the ears and the hearts to see what it is that you have for us this morning, and that we would be challenged and encouraged to be the kind of neighbors that you would have us be so lives can be changed and neighborhoods can be changed as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... This morning was Mother's Day, still is Mother's Day, and it's still morning, but um, this morning, Steph, uh, we got to surprise Steph, because Shaylin, a few weeks ago, had this idea. She's like, Dad, I'm like, what do you want to do for Mother's Day? She says, Dad, I want to get her mommy a mug, and then we can make her tea on Mother's Day morning. I'm like, that is such a great idea. Let's do that. And then um, she'd just gone to Color Me Mine over in 4S to, uh, for like a, a party there, um, and so I was like, honey, 
what if we made mommy a mug and had her tea ready for her in the morning? And she says, okay, great. And so uh, while Steph was at the uh, women's retreat at the end of April, I took uh, Shaylin and Elise, and then my mother-in-law was here to kind of help out, so she came because I needed the help. Uh, and so the four of us went over to Color Me Mine, and Shaylin found this mug, and on the side it said, uh, it says, we love you a latte. And so she like, saw this one that was like a mug. It's like, okay, we want to make one like that. So she picked the colors. Uh, Elise like, helped paint a little bit of the inside, but she contributed. Um, but Shaylin just picked the colors and like put dots on it. She made this just really, really cool thing. Um, and so we were trying, though, because we got it a few weeks ago. We're like, we don't want to spill the surprise. And so um, Elise and Shaylin, there was a night probably two weeks ago where Shaylin was like, Daddy, can I tell mommy I love her a latte? And I was like, sure you can, but like, you know, she's not gonna know what that means. She goes, mommy, I love you a latte. And Steph is like, I love you a latte too. And, um, and then Elise, our two-year-old, is like, mommy, I love you a latte. Mommy, we made you. I was like, shh. <laughs> and so we, we, we were able to, she's just like looking, I'm like, no. And so, you know, Steph was none the wiser, or at least she let us believe that way. Um, and we, this morning, Shaylin loves her sleep, but she's like, last night she's like, Daddy, wake me up so that we can make tea for Mommy. So this morning uh, we wake up, I wake uh, Shaylin up, we make her tea, and she was just so excited to be able to give her this mug that says, we love you a latte. And so we got to explain like, all that, and, and Steph just loved it. And so I was telling people, Steph's here at first service, and I was like, it's, it's not a spoiler alert. She already had the tea this morning, so it wasn't ruining it. But we were really excited. And so just this idea of, of celebrating Mother's Day, and the reason... You know, one of the things we celebrate on Mother's Day is this idea of the love that a mother has. And, and Connie did a great job reading from Isaiah 49 earlier, just kind of sharing that idea of, of how can a mother forget uh, the one that she's nursed or the child that she's born, uh, given birth to. And so, but even if that were possible, that God cannot forgive us, forget us, that he cannot forget the ones that he's loved, he cannot forsake us. You know, for some of us, you know, Mother's Day is a day that, you know, we grab brunch afterwards or, or you get a cup of tea or you uh, get a few presents. Um, that's, a, that's a great thing. And you get things that are drawn and, and colored for you. Um, for others of us, though, you know, if we're really honest, Mother's Day is a tough day. Mother's Day could be a day that maybe we remember a, a mom that we loved that has passed away. And so there's a little bit of a, a pang of, of fear and pain there. Maybe for some of us, we didn't have that relationship with our mom that we wanted. We, we felt distant, or maybe she left, or, or maybe it's something where she was present but never fully there for us. And so we struggle with this idea of, of Mother's Day, and we struggle with this idea of the love of a mother um, as, as evidenced in the scriptures, Isaiah 49. And you know, maybe for some of us, it's, there's some people who really want to be moms, and they're not able to. And so... Seeing this every second Sunday of May can just be that, that, that extra pain of, of not being able to be a mom and wanting to so badly. And so we recognize that this day is not always an easy day. Um, it's not always a great day for some people, but it's a day that we all come in and we recognize the reason why we are celebrating moms is that when a, a mom is, is living and loving the way that she should, she's living this life that is sacrificial, that is laying down her life for her kids, that is something where she's given up you know, her body while during pregnancy, she's given up sleep, she's given up her own likes and dislikes in a lot of ways. I mean, there's so much 
that moms have given up. And so this is not a Mother's Day sermon, but it lands us on this point that we're going to dive into more this morning. And this idea that, these, that moms often have this what's mine is yours attitude with their kids. And so we're going to dive in this morning is this idea that the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says what's mine is yours. The greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says what's mine is yours. And so the scripture gives us a picture of what this type of love looks like, especially in relation to what it looks like to love our neighbors and to be a good neighbor. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in to Luke chapter 10 and 25 through 30 or through 39. I'm sorry, 37. But as you are turning there, if you have the church Bible, we're on page 1615, 1615. If you brought your own Bible or you have your, your, uh, the Bible app, that's awesome. Uh, we're, di- we're glad you're diving in the Word with us, and we'll be in Luke 10. And as you're turning, I'm, I'm going to read 25 through 29. And although it's vitally important, this is not where we're landing up for the sermon, but we want to get the context of what is happening in this passage as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan together. So we're going to start in Luke 10, 25, to provide the context. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. You know, we'll stop there. There's two things that are happening in this passage um, and with this response. One is we see in verse 25 that this man went up to test Jesus. He didn't actually want to learn from Jesus. He wanted to create a trap in which Jesus would say something that he shouldn't be saying or that he would entrap him um, so that he could be arrested or what have you. So he's, he's not actually coming to learn. He's coming to, to, to test. But then he stands up and says, you know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? Like a good teacher often turns back a question upon the question. He says, well, what do you think? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, yep, you got it. Do that and you'll live. Now, two things are, are happening through this, this expert of the law's mind right now. One is he's realizing that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is such a, uh, such a high calling, such a difficult thing to do that he recognizes that he's probably not done that. So then what he does is he says, well, the second thing that he's doing is looking at, well, then uh, he'd asked a question to Jesus to try to trap him. Jesus asked him the question back, and this man was proven to clearly know the answer to his question ahead of time. So there's a little bit of an embarrassment factor there to, to, to think, well, why did you even ask that if you know the answer already? And so he starts to justify himself. And this is what we see in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because love your neighbor as yourself, he's trying to maybe get around the fact of maybe he really has been loving his neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And he kind of takes it down this route. So let's just read together. Verses 30 through 37, I'll read, and you can follow along. And in order to answer this question, who is my neighbor? Verse 30 says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this is a passage, a parable of the Good Samaritan that many of us who grew up in the church have heard uh, for years, and many of us maybe who haven't grown up in the church, still are aware of this story. It's a very powerful story, a very uh, well-known story that we have hospitals named after Good Samaritans, we have laws named after Good Samaritans, that this is something that has incorporated itself within our common knowledge. So when we're looking at this idea of, of how is it that we view our neighbors, we ask this question, how is it that you view your neighbors? And so we're going to look at the different people in this parable, and we're going to look at the different viewpoints that they have of this man, of their neighbor here. And so uh, some of this idea comes from uh, Dean Brown of Yale, so this is not original to me, and another one, uh, part of it as well, comes from, I believe his name is John Handy, who uh, we have a, uh, know as a missionary as well. Um, but some of the ideas here are kind of encapsulated, so it's not original with me, but I don't want to share it with you, because uh, I think it has the potential to have a big impact on our lives. And so, the first viewpoint of how we view our neighbors is this idea of what's yours is mine. What's yours is mine. And because what's yours is mine, the action that comes out of that is saying, well, I'm going to take it from you. What's yours is mine, so I'm going to take it from you. This is the, the viewpoint, the, the view of the thieves in this passage, that they look at someone who's walking by themselves along this dangerous road, and they realize that this is someone that we can take advantage of, this is someone that we can attack, this is someone that we can exploit, this is someone that we can steal from, so we don't care about that person at all as a person, because it doesn't matter, so what's theirs is for us to take. So the verbiage of that is, what's yours is mine, so I'm going to take it from you. Now, Warren Wiersbe, the commentator, says, to the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. He was a victim to exploit, not a person, not someone to care for, a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. Now, this is the mindset that we see from people. This what's yours is mine mindset is this, the mindset that we see when we think about human trafficking and, and someone who says that people aren't people, they're property, so we can take it's the same mindset that we see with, with violent crimes, with assaults, with uh, areas in which people are victimized. Because it's this idea of saying, listen, I don't care about you. What's, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to exploit it, and I'm going to take it for myself, and I'm going to take it from you. It's the same mindset that um, I had the opportunity in 2011 to visit Zimbabwe, and, and for years upon years, the, the ruler, the leader, the dictator there was Robert Mugabe, and he was someone that... The Zimbabwe was known as the breadbasket of Africa. It was known as a place that would have enough food and enough resources to, to, to very easily care for everybody within their nation. But instead of being a leader who wanted to care for his people, he was a leader who said, well, what's yours is mine. This is my resources. These are my things. And so he made money off of the country's resources, leaving the people of Zimbabwe destitute and poor. Because he said, what's yours is mine. 
so I'm going to take it from you. This is the mindset that we see all around um, the world. And it's the mindset that the thieves embodied here in the Good Samaritan parable. So the first viewpoint of how we view neighbors is what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it from you. The second one is this idea of what's mine is mine. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it for myself. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it for myself. This is how the religious leaders, the, the, the priest and the Levite in this story, this is how they responded, because they recognized that what was theirs, what they were known for, what their job was, was to, to be priests specifically, and then the Levite to be someone who, again, is a, is a leader and is someone who um, has certain rules. And so the idea of touching a dead body, or what they can tell, he was left half dead, so they don't even know if he's alive, uh, but the idea of touching a body would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they use their religious system and their religious rules to stop them from actually helping someone in need. And, they, and not only do they not help them, but when he, they see them on one side of the road, they go to the complete other side in order to keep their purity intact, in order to keep their, their, that which they are holding dear to them, their, their identity, their purity, their us versus them mentality, to keep that intact. So this idea of what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it for myself. Their mindset wasn't, how can I give to this person? How can I help this person? It was, how can I stay far enough away to not be contaminated by this person? And this is the one that religious people, that people who don't see the whole heart of the gospel, but that just want to follow rules, this is the one that it's easy to fall into. Warren Wiersbe says that to the priest and the Levite, this man was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. And then later on, he says, it is much easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve the neighborhood. It is much easier to maintain a religious system, to keep a set of how we think we need to live or, or these ideas of us versus them than it is to actually change things and to change the neighborhood. That for us, it's easy for people who know the Lord and, or people in a relationship to say, okay, well, we're the good ones and everybody else are the bad ones. We are the ones who are righteous. Everybody else is unrighteous. We are the ones who are in the right. Everybody else is in the wrong. And as we continue to do that, instead of building bridges in which we can break down walls and have relationships with people, instead of building bridges with those who are far from God, we are building up walls to the point where now we're not able to have, share the gospel in a way that is powerful. Because we're creating this us versus them mindset, this idea that somebody has to fit a certain box or certain criteria in order for us to help them first. But God doesn't call us to give a background check for those we want to help. He calls us to help. And now some of you might be saying, but what about those who might take advantage of that? And, and what about those that you know, would use that and, and then come in response and say, well, then what's yours is mine, and they have this, this negative attitude. Like, what we want to do is there's a difference between enabling people, right, versus actually walking alongside them to help them experience life change. So what I'm not saying is that we just keep enabling people to, to be in, in areas of brokenness or struggles and sins and things like that, but that we would walk alongside with people so that they can experience life change, that we're not just feeding them a fish, but we're teaching them how to fish, and that we recognize that we want to continue to be a church where people can come as they are, but they wouldn't stay as they are because God is doing a new thing in them. And so we look at this idea that it is not up to us to decide who deserves our help all the time. 
That God may just put someone in our path and say, help that person. And we don't say, well, they don't believe, they don't believe the same things, they don't live the same way, they don't love the same things. But sometimes it's just, we need help. And it's by helping that we break down an us versus them mindset and we build a bridge so that people can know who Jesus is. That uh, Norval Gildenweiss says this, if you are really well disposed and if you really love God, you will also love your fellow man and you will show neighborly love to everyone in need of your help, no matter who or what that person may be. Andy Stanley puts it a different way when he says, everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. So who are we to decide that we're only going to help a certain amount of people who look a certain way, live a certain way, think a certain way, act a certain way, but instead in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, being able to find opportunities that even if people don't agree with us, we recognize that a neighbor is not just someone who looks like us or lives next to us. A neighbor is anyone who has a need that we can meet. It's not about proximity. It's about our availability to help. Thirdly, this idea of, we've already talked about what's yours is mine, so I'm going to take it from you. We've talked about what's mine is mine, I'm going to keep it from myself. And then lastly, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it with you. What's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it with you. That the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says what's mine is yours. So I'm going to share it with you. This is the idea that is embodied by the Samaritan in this passage, that he goes and he rides along the road and he stops and he takes action and he sees that this man is broken and he gets off his donkey and he has this pity, that this, this idea of he has pity on him. He goes and he bandages him up. He brings the oil and wine, which is a mixture that could help for healing, and, and they, he puts it on his wounds. He brings him onto his donkey, takes him to the inn, that this inn was a place that he knew the innkeeper well enough that he could say, hey, I'm going to give you money, and I'll be back for it. So he's been there before, and, and this idea of a denarii was a day's wages, but um, one of the common series I looked into said that each denarii could last for one month's worth of rent here at this inn. So it's something where he's overabundantly giving generously in order to say, hey, this, he could stay here for two months on my dime, and if anything else is spent, I will come on top of that and I will pay for it. And so we recognize that this completely shatters the us versus them mentality that the Jewish culture at that time would have bought into because the Samaritan, and, and some of us know this and some of us don't, but Samaritans was the idea of when the Jewish people and the 10 northern tribes were taken to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., as they started to be separated from the two southern tribes, the, Jewish, the ten Jewish tribes up, up top, up north, ended up marrying and intermarrying with the Assyrians. And so the Jewish people plus the Assyrians, that's where the Samaritan culture came from. And so the Jewish people would look and they would think, well, when it comes to us versus them, they're like our enemies. They're, they're some of the worst because not only are they different from us, but they were actually were the same. And then they chose to intermarry with those who didn't know the Lord. And so this was something where he eradicates this us versus them mindset. He eradicates it by having the Samaritan be the one that says, what's mine is yours, so I'm going to share it with you. Because now they can't fit the Samaritan into their little box anymore. Now they have to recognize that it's about being a neighbor to whomever God has placed in our path. Warren Wiersbe says, but to the Samaritan, this neighbor, or sorry, this man was a neighbor to love and help, so we took care of him. 
And so neighbor does not merely mean one who lives nearby, but anyone who has a need that we can meet. Rabbi Nahamani's says this, he says, one should place no limitations upon the love for the neighbor, but instead a person should love to do an abundance of good for his fellow being as he does for himself. And then Archibald Thomas Robertson says, this parable of the Good Samaritan has built the world's hospitals, and if understood in practice, will remove race prejudice, national hatred and war, and class jealousy. That if we truly grasp as individuals, as a church, as the body of Christ, if we truly grasp this idea that the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says what's mine is yours, and we live that kind of love, and we are neighbors in that way, that we'll be able to see people who are far from God coming near to God, that we will see lives being transformed. We will see people who are so far and put in a box that they were so far from God come into a place where they have a right relationship with him. And that only can happen when we recognize that we were once so far from God, that we were once put in a box in which because of our sin, we could not know Jesus, but because while we were still sinners and while we were still enemies of God, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he died for us, that we recognize that now the boxes have been eliminated. We recognize that walls have been broken down and we recognize that we can now be a neighbor to whomever God has put in our reach, that, we can have a, that they have a need that we can meet. And we can see lives transformed because we serve a God who transforms lives and we serve a gospel of transformation. So those are the three mindsets that we have here, but what does it look like for us? What does that look like for us tangibly today here? Now the Good Samaritan story starts with the expert of the law saying, you know, what must I do to inter life? And the next question is, well, then who is my neighbor? Because he wants a loophole. He wants a way to get out of serving everybody and loving everybody as himself. But it ends with Jesus saying, well, who's the one that gave, the, who, who uh, was a neighbor? He said, well, the one who showed him mercy. So in, what, what Jesus is saying is not so much what the expert of the law is saying, like, who is my neighbor? Basically saying, who is it that I'm able to love sacrificially and generously and wholeheartedly? And who is it that doesn't really count? But instead of that question of who is my neighbor, Jesus turns it around. He basically asks each of every one of us today is not who is my neighbor, but who can you be a neighbor to? Not who is within my box that I can reach out to, but who can you be a neighbor to? Who can you love because they have a need and you can meet that need? Regardless of what they believe or how they look or what they think or their background, who has a need that you can meet? Who will you be a neighbor to? And so we see that Jesus eliminates this us versus them mindset. And he reminds us that we can be neighbors with everyone. Andy Stanley also says this, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus did something for the entire world that we've still not recovered from. Jesus redefined neighbor. For Jewish people, much like sometimes for American people or people who look like you or people in the community, a neighbor used to be someone who is like you. But Jesus said, no, that's not what a neighbor is like in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, a neighbor is anyone who has a need you can meet. Breaks down walls and builds bridges. So how do we become a good neighbor? Now, there's a slide that has all these things listed out. So how do we become a good neighbor? How do we love our neighbors? And we're just going to list them all out there. The first one is we take action. We show compassion. We serve others, we walk with those in need, and we exhibit sacrificial 
generosity. Now, if you've been with us for this series, you'll recognize that each and every one of those is what we've dedicated each one of the past five weeks to. That we've been studying this idea of what it means to be a good neighbor this entire series by using the Good Samaritan story and the Good Samaritan parable as a foundation for it. So let's look at the very first week, this idea of taking action. This idea that the Good Samaritan, when he saw that the man was in need, he didn't just keep going. He didn't separate. He didn't just go about his way, but he stopped and he took action. In the same way that the Jewish people in the Babylonian exile needed to stop, get involved in their community, in their neighborhood, and take action. The next one is he showed compassion. That the word here is this idea of he had pity on them. He showed compassion. It's this word that means intestines or guts. Like this idea that it hurts us to the core, this level of compassion. And so he had compassion on him. And he realized he couldn't do everything, but he could take what he had and God would use it, he would take it, he would bless it, he would break it, and he would multiply it. Then we see this idea that he served him, that he bandaged his wounds, that he put this, this uh, oil and wine on him, and he cared for him. He didn't say, well, I'm not a doctor, so I can't help out. He said, I'm going to serve, even though I may not be good enough or qualified, I'm going to do the best that I can and not allow insecurities to stop me. So he served others. The next thing he did is he walked with this man in his time of need. He put him on his own donkey so that he couldn't ride, but that he could walk with this man in the time of need and to bring him to the one who could care for him. In this case, it's the inn. For us, it's the feet of Jesus, like those four friends who bring and walked with their friend who's paralyzed and brought him to the feet of Jesus. And then lastly, exhibiting sacrificial generosity when he said, hey, here's two months worth of, of rent at the inn. I'll pay for whatever else comes. That we've used this whole series, The Good Samaritan, as an idea of what it means to be a good neighbor. And that's what we're, we've dived uh, taken time to dive into over the past month, month and a half or so. And that ends with that sacrificial generosity idea that we can't outgive God, but he loves it when we try. And so for us this morning, it's who can you be a neighbor to? Who can you be a neighbor to? And where or who have you created an us versus them mindset that needs to be broken down? So it could be who have you be a neighbor to and in what ways have you created an us versus them mindset that needs to be broken down? Now, I want to close this sermon and this series uh, idea with, in John 1.14, we talk, there's a, a very well-known passage. that says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's the NIV version, uh, the New International Version. Uh, there's a version in the message that I loved this verbiage of it. So I wanted to share with you as we kind of culminate this series, this idea that the word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. So as we're looking at changing neighborhoods, we recognize that Jesus, he became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. And when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, and when those who love him and follow him live that neighborhood living out, that we see incredible lives being changed. You know, we have some missionaries in Ecuador, and I'm going to close with these stories here. We have some missionaries in Ecuador, uh, in Mike and Danelle Bukta. And so... Uh, what they've been doing is, is they've been working alongside. They start in Peru, and they've been going to Ecuador. They're in Santo Domingo now. And what they do is they actually use and equip people to use this thing called a peace treaty. And it's, it's uh, something in which that they use the Good Samaritan passage of Scripture, and they go around and they walk um, on these blocks you're seeing here, and they do this adopt-a-block where they go per block, and one of the things they do first is go and talk to people, and they say, hey, here's the Good Samaritan passage. How can we be like a Samaritan to you? How can we serve you? How can we help you? 
And once they find out ways in which they help, they, they come alongside the leaders of the area, of the barrios, and they help them out. It's not something where they just come in and they fix everything. They come in with the neighborhood leaders, and they change the neighborhoods that way. And so that then, once they've kind of built rapport and built connection, then what they do is they do this adopt-a-block where they walk through, and they just share the Good Samaritan passage. And they talk about the idea of the different mindsets of what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, and what's mine is yours. And then they... they basically have this thing called a peace treaty, which was written by, I think his name is John Handy, but um, they created this thing, which how is it that you need to have, make peace with God? Because we all need peace with God. And he uses the good, they use the Good Samaritan passage to be the foundation of that. And so they've, they've been doing this for quite a while, and I want to read something that they shared. And they said, here are some of the, the ways in which the neighborhood has been changed, is that now the place that was once incredibly violent, with people being murdered in the streets is a place where it's much safer. They said that when it comes to these peace treaties, they've started, sorry, they started two churches in Ecuador and two in Peru. We've done over 3,000 peace treaties, just discipled over 1,500 people. They've seen several people transforming their lives. And so you saw a couple pictures there of people on the block, and then you saw the next group of pictures where after they have this peace treaty, they go and have one-on-one discipleship, and they walk through uh, more of this peace treaty together. So what happens is the Good Samaritan passage becomes the open door for their neighborhoods to be changed because they say, how can we help you? And then they start to paint the picture of how is it that we all need peace with God? Because as much as we want to say we're like the Samaritans, sometimes we're often not. And then they have seen 3,000 peace treaties being shared, 1,500 discipling relationships being formed, four different churches in two different countries and so much of it comes out of this idea that the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says what's mine is yours. This way of serving and loving and displaying God's love in that way. And so what I want to do is I want to read two quick stories of people that have been impacted by their ministry. The first one is Neri and Mercy. And it says, one day while the volunteer team was doing Adopt-A-Block, they met a couple and their three children. The couple's names are Neri and Mercy, and the three children are Mercy's children and not Neri's. However, Neri treats Mercy's children like his own. He provides for them and is extremely kind to them. Now, Neri comes from a family of thieves and drug addicts. He tried several different churches throughout the years in search of peace, but he could never find it. And during a peace treaty session, both Neri and Mercy felt the presence of Christ. They started to read their Bibles together and gave God, oh, sorry, and God gave them an understanding of his word. It greatly fulfilled them that they were experiencing God speak to them through the Bible. Their entire family is involved in the church now. They participate in small groups and other church activities. Neri, Mercy, and their two daughters, Estrella and Gabriella, got baptized October 8th, where they became faithful disciples of Christ. Neri is starting to evangelize and is doing the peace treaty with several other people. And through that, he has baptized three people. And he says, I'm in love with Jesus, and I want to obey him. And then we look at Neptili and Daisy. In 2010, we met Neptili and Daisy while we were working in Peru. They grew up in a small jungle town that produced cocaine for Pablo Escobar, so obviously they both were integrated into that type of lifestyle. It was getting pretty dangerous, but luckily they were able to leave and move to Trujillo. This is where we met them, and the transformation of their lives began. They became true disciples of Christ and matured in their faith. They were called to be missionaries and to move their family from Peru to Ecuador. And now they will be starting a new church plant in Quevedo, about two hours away from our church in Santo Domingo. Their oldest son, Jeremy, 15 years old, says that he is a missionary. 
And what they say is that our passion is to share the gospel with others. God called us to serve him seven years ago, and we answered our calling, and we are blessed and grateful to serve him. We are available and ready to go wherever he takes us. See, when we're talking about this idea of changing neighborhoods, this is something that can happen. This is something that is happening, and it's something that will happen as, as we take these things seriously, as we live like the Good Samaritan, and we exhibit the kind of love that is the greatest kind of love for sure that says, what's mine is yours, because that's the kind of love that God has for us. And as disciples and believers and followers of Jesus, that's the kind of love that we can have for others to show them who Jesus truly is. And so on the very bottom, there's this thing that says main point. And so I just want to leave that main point up there for you, that the greatest, greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says, what's mine is yours. Because that kind of love is transforming lives and neighborhoods in Ecuador, transforming lives and neighborhoods in Peru, and it can change lives and neighborhoods in Poway with us as a church in San Diego County with you individually as we exhibit and live out the greatest kind of love for sure, which is the kind of love that says what's mine is yours. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for what you have for us today. God, we recognize that that there are ways in which that we have built up us versus them mentalities, and so we pray for forgiveness for those things. When we have times where we feel like because someone doesn't believe a certain way or do a certain thing the way that, that you would even want them to, Lord, that that excludes them from us serving. But rather, God, this is an opportunity for us to break down walls and to build bridges and to be able to have the opportunity to share who you truly are with us and with them. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, challenge us to recognize who is it that we could be a neighbor to. And that as each of us take that mantle and take that responsibility upon ourselves, help us to dream about how you would work in our city and in our county so that lives and families and neighborhoods would be changed to the glory of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the ushers are going to come forward uh, in just a moment as they head forward now. Uh, what we want to do is I want to take one last look at these three ideas of the three viewpoints of neighbors. And really briefly, we look at the idea of if we were to picture views of re different religions through these different mindsets, one is what's yours is mine. And this is the idea of, of a lot of the idea of the Greek gods and the Roman gods or even other uh, religions in which the god doesn't care about the people at all. They want to take advantage, they want to take for themselves, they want to pillage, they want exactly what, whatever it is that they want most. And so they say to the people, what's yours is mine. You owe me, you give me everything. The next one is this idea of what's mine is mine. And this would be the idea of a God who created the world, but then doesn't care about the world. One who is unavailable and unresponsive and uncaring and just wants to keep for himself and say, oh, I formed it and now, now I'm just on my own. But as you well know, neither of those describe our God, and neither of those describe Jesus Christ. What describes Jesus Christ is the one that says, what's mine is yours, because he was in heaven with perfect unity with the Father, with righteousness, and with eternal life, and, and he recognized that if he didn't come down to, to live a perfect life, to die a horrible death, and be raised to new life, that we would not be able to experience eternal life that we wouldn't have the righteousness that, that allows us to have a right relationship with God. And so what he says is, what's mine is yours now. 
because of what he did on the cross, because he rose to new life, and because now the same spirit there is Christ and the dead is in us, we are able to experience eternal life. And so if you are new here or you're still not sure about your relationship with Jesus, we would love to be able to connect with you, answer any questions, just talk with you with that. Um, so don't feel pressured to take that this morning, the communion. But if you call Jesus your Lord and Palmer Auto Christian Church your home, uh, this is an opportunity for us to take that. And as you are communing with God, and as you take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood, let us remember that the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that said, like Jesus did, what's mine is yours. So please feel free to take as you feel led. So the seed that we've received in the gospel of Jesus is the seed that we have the opportunity, the honor, the calling and responsibility to sow amongst those around us, that we wouldn't just worry about those who are living next to us. Yes, we can start there, but anyone who has a need we can meet, that we can do so, so that they can know the love and the hope and the life that only comes through the seed that we've sown through Jesus Christ, and that we recognize that we as people who call ourselves Christians are on that journey, that we have the opportunity to spread that seed, to show his love, and in so doing, be changing lives, changing families, and changing neighborhoods. As we live out the idea that the greatest kind of love for sure is the kind that says, what's mine is yours. May you live that out this week. May we as a church continue to live that out uh, for many, many years to come. Uh, so with that said, Please feel free to grab some of those cards for the homeless survival bags um, and just recognize it's an opportunity for us to do what we've been talking about, to be the good neighbors that can help change lives. We love you. We're so grateful that you're here. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and happy Mother's Day.